sometimes we try to judge humanity as as an adult that should be perfect, you know, almost like should be a god. And I think we're not. We're just this little kid that runs a little wild, that has some very uh, extreme tendencies sometimes, and that we need to learn. So in the process of learning, we've been trying to do things in the planet and we've been being very destructive. But at the same time, there is a part of humanity that is this beautiful consciousness. Uh, It's the one that has the ability to look at what we've done and improve it and think about, hey, how, how do we do this better? Happy Friday, Earthlings! Cecilia Abadi, also known as CNOW, is a technology evangelist and our guest on today's episode of Movement Matters, a real wellness podcast with Colin and Diana. C has a passion for augmented and virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and the co-evolution of biologic and digital life. After founding her startup, 33 Labs, in 2013 and joining two other startups in the AR space, C currently works for Google as part of the Immersive Reality Department. This was such a fascinating discussion from future to gratitude, mindfulness to children, how to raise them in this day and age. I feel like we all evolved a lot just by talking to her. It was also the first time that we put technology to the test with a remote conversation because he was talking to us from Silicon Valley in California. Please note that the opinions C expressed on this podcast are her own and do not necessarily reflect those of Google. And enjoy. Have a blast. Well, so welcome to our little podcast here. C, so good to have you even that we are remotely talking to you for the first time, actually, in our short-lived episodes. So you are in the West Coast in beautiful, sunny California. How is the weather today? Today is nice. Uh, depends. It can change from the coast to, I'm in the valley right now. It's a little different, but it's nice. Where are you exactly in California? Right now, I'm in Mountain View, and uh, that's part of what's known as Silicon Valley, and I'm living more in the coast near Half Moon Bay. So it's south of San Francisco. Both both of these are south of San Francisco. Yeah, I know exactly where you live. One of the most beautiful <laughs> beaches I've ever put my feet on, and I dare to put my up to my knees. I couldn't do any more than that. It's a, it's a surf beach. People aren't allowed to swim. Is that correct? Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's very... Pacific Ocean at its fullest, kind of wild beach, yeah. Montara, what a beautiful place. Mm. Yeah, so see, tell us a tiny bit about, um, if you don't mind that I start asking, you want to say hello to Hi, her? C. Can you hear me from here? Hey, Colin. I'll move it closer. I hear you well. Hi. Yeah. Hey. Oh, good. Okay, good. I was a little further back. How come you can't go in the water? I'm confused. 
Is there a, it's, legal? it's legal. It's or just dangerous. a little dangerous. It's not a typical kind of uh, swimming beach. It's more of a wild beach where there's undercurrent and um, it can be a little violent. <laughs> oh, okay. Got it. Got it. All right. Beautiful. All right. Let's let's go. <laughs> let's go swimming. So I have some some interest in, in you sharing with our listeners a little bit of your beginning passion for technology back in maybe Uruguay. I You don't have to date yourself, but let's say a while ago. Uh, just because it seems to me from the conversations we've had, we've known each other for what now? Two Almost two years. It's going to be a year and a half. Yeah, We by the way, we met through Twitter and uh, we became like, instant friends first conversation first fun conversation and um thanks to mr tim ferris so interesting how life brings you to close to the people that is going uh, are going to become part of your life important part of your life and um and since uh, i've met you i realized that you have this interest in technology that is almost visionary it's a while while ago when very few people were into software and technology and not to talk about genre, but being a woman and coming from a small country in South America, we both come from, just tell us a little bit about how did that bug beat you, if you don't mind. For sure. So I was a, a little kid that really loved science and math. So I already was having the right tracks to pick up on software. And uh, when I was 13 years old, uh, one of my cousins uh, told me in a summer uh, she was going to do a programming computer programming class and that was completely unheard at the time and uh, these were very like basic computers with very basic languages at the time and i went into this class in the summer and i started to play like a game and build little games that's all we could do at the time and it was fun and i fell in love with it and it completely changed what I thought it would be my career, which I was more oriented towards service and being a doctor maybe. And I had all this concern with Africa and health in the planet. And uh, But when I met computers, I just couldn't, uh, couldn't stop having this obsession for understanding what, what else can we do with this tech? And are these computers ever going to think by themselves? What else is going to happen with these computers? So... Uh, I have a passion for evolution and science and computers and technology kind of fit in very nicely into that. And I just couldn't ever give up this passion. So I'm still a geek. In the best sense of the word. The best kind of geek. Yeah. So what happened then? You You were 13 and then what? What did she do? You you got out of high school and then... Yeah, from there I... No, even way before uh, high school I, I... I, what I did is I started to go to the next class and there was another class on some language called basic then. And then I started to bag my whole family, which was a middle class, kind of my mom was a teacher, middle class, uh, typical family. And I started to bag everybody until we collected all the money. It was like my own little uh, Kickstarter <laughs> fund me campaign. Um, to to actually raise the funds to be able to buy my first computer. 
And with my first computer, I bugged a lot of more people to give me free classes. And I just kept going from there. And, you know, programming is this thing where you really are working really hard and you have these big challenges and then eventually you end up winning and you build something and something you built is now out in the world. So there's a lot of very good feedback loop and reinforcing. It's very fulfilling thing from the scratch, from the beginning. Yeah. Sounds almost like giving birth, like creating your own being. Mm-hmm. True, because those programs, once you let them out, and today they're more like apps and websites, and they have a life of their own. And sometimes when you build something, you think you build it for users and with users in mind, and users take your, your tool into whole new dimensions. They figure out new ways to do things with whatever you build. So it's a fun process. Mm. And then you created a company. Well, how how can we leap into you creating a software company and being one of the first? I remember that Mac company, by the way, oh, back wow. in the day. Probably mm-hmm. the first one. Yeah, it was one of the first software companies in Uruguay, in South America. And uh, I came together with a friend that had a lot more experience than me. I was in my early 20s. She was on her early 30s. And we came together and created this software company that we do all sorts of services because, you know, you had to have a scrappy life back then. And we were teaching people to use Macs. We were doing software development. We were doing printing services and, you know, editing services. And um, it was a very fun ride. But from there, I started to move on to a larger company. And I have this history of going into independent and startup and then joining companies and then back to independent and startup life. So I had a few of these, and one of these uh, companies I joined brought me to the U.S., which, uh, you know, it's a, it's a whole new environment. I came on my uh, 20s to the U.S., and I started to work with this company, traveling around the country, uh, doing consulting services around the planet as well. So um, one thing led to the other, but typically I, I always tend to work with new technologies, So when the web came in, for instance, in the early 90s, I started to move from whatever I was doing to going to the web because from the beginning, I understood the internet would be this amazing tool to connect people, which your little story about us meeting Diana on the internet on Twitter, it's a perfect example of how people that are on the planet can access resources, information, but also connection to people that are similar and have similar interests. Right. Yeah, totally. I we are we are the living example of how uh, a, a innocent Twitter message can develop into a really deep and fulfilling uh, personal relationship. I actually traveled towards you in California several times and stayed at your house, and you know we know each other's kids. And at this point, I would say um, richer than than a lot of relationships you have with people that you see hello, goodbye, and you don't really deepen. So it takes it takes um, nothing away uh, of remote connections. Speaking about, we can't really see it right now. So we are, we are doing it again. True. Um, I actually so- have a theory about that because it seems like uh, online, we get connected in these very particular levels. Like you get to meet people that are exactly like, uh, like I know because we know each other, Diana, that you guys meet in person, but you also met 
with a whole group, uh, you know, that you meet online uh, and you can meet the exact people that are following, you know, Wim Hof maybe and doing all these particular methods or Tim Ferriss or whoever it is. So you can meet very specific people online, very targeted. And it seems like uh, real world is a little broken now. And when you are working in the real world, you might have the most interesting people around you. You really have to start with these very basic and casual conversations of, hey, how are you? How's the weather? And very simple things to actually eventually find the people that are really interesting to you. And I think what's happening right now is people are uh, kind of not so interesting on the casual conversations. And it's, I like to call it uh, reality is broken because... Now in real life, it's hard to find the real juicy people that would be these long, deep, long-term relationships, but uh, it's easy online. And what I believe will happen eventually is these two things should connect and uh, you're going to be able to see people in real life and actually see uh, what are the common interests or who are the people that you really want to connect that are around you right now. And then the best of online and the best of real world might come together again, full cycle. Oh, this is really bringing me back memories of a conversation we had walking down that beach. I don't really know if, can you talk about that or can you not, um, about this yeah. idea of what, what AI can do with us, but maybe let's, let's not jump ahead. Can you share a little bit about how did you get involved with Google? When, when did that start? So I was having my small startup five years ago uh, in Southern California, near San Diego. And um, there was, again, this tendency of always following what, what's next. And at some point, I was like, okay, the web and the phones are already kind of mature technologies. There has to be something after. And uh, eventually, I started looking into what would be coming. And uh, I was sitting in a conference called Google I.O. and I saw Google Glass come out. And this was 2012. And that started a very wild ride because I fell in love with the product and uh, I, uh, my startup started to develop software for it. And we, um, I had this weird incident where I was stopped by, by cops uh, for driving in wearing Google Glass at the same time. So that became kind of national and international news. I went to sleep one night posting this little post on a social network saying that I got a ticket for driving with Google Glass. And when I woke up in the morning, it was like worldwide kind of news. So it was my five minutes of fame and um, my startup did benefit from that and got a lot of coverage. I became an international speaker for wearables. And uh, at some point, I continued to work on what's called augmented reality, this idea of overlapping things to reality through the usage typically of head headset, typically glasses of some sort. And... Um, this is the point where I, I probably don't want to continue to speak a lot more because once I joined uh, Google a year and a half ago, um, things become a little different. I'm already a public person and uh, anything I say can be, you know, taken in some ways or another. And I had to go by a certain, a certain rules that uh, pertain to a larger organization. 
See, I think I missed that headline. What was the ticket for? Was it like driving with a cell phone, comparable to driving with a cell phone? Or what did you get pulled over for? It's a... So I got pulled over for a speed, excess of a speed, actually, because I was having a crazy life. Like I had a full-time job. I had a startup that I was doing at nine weekends and uh, very little sleep. And uh, I was trying to get from one place to another speaking about this amazing new technology. So in that excitement, I guess I was um, speeding and I was stopped originally for speeding. But when the cop stopped me, he noticed I was wearing this new device, uh, like a pair of glasses. Do you know what Google Sorry? Yeah, Diana's asking if I know what they are. Um, yeah, I'm going to, I think it's basically a phone in glasses form, right? That's internet, very true. That is... smart, smartphone is gla- in glasses form, right? Isn't that, that is exactly right. That is exactly <laughs> right. It's, yeah. it's essentially compressing the, the format. Most... Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm probably the least informed about I have a lot of ideas about uh, all of this stuff, but I'm the least informed about what it actually is and how it actually works, pro- probably, in this room. So one day we'll have to show you. But uh, yes, essentially, it's exactly what you said. You have the exact right idea. It's this uh, change of form factor, but essentially same or very similar functionality, uh, which becomes like a wearable. And in terms of... Um, the ticket itself. So there's an old law that prevents a car a driver to be seen a monitor or a screen on any sort. And this was probably originally targeting, you know, people preventing people from watching videos while they drive. But that was the article that was used by the officer in that case. Okay. And all, I got a ticket once yeah? for in New York for just, I didn't even know, it was, it was ridiculous, uh, for holding my phone and cops saw me just even holding it. So there's a lot of, True. yeah, you, you can't have your, in certain cities, obviously. And you said, where was this? Was, this was near San Diego. Did you say this was LA? Near San Diego. San Diego, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Okay. So I missed this headline, jump ahead, you're, you know, or you got your ticket, but now you're, you said that helped you become more of a public persona or have a public that's persona. right i got i got the uh, <laughs> lawyers to help me pro bono <laughs> yes and uh we all the all the charges were dismissed uh the lawyer didn't even have to work too hard there was media there it was a it was a thing and the judge wanted everything to finish quick and uh it was interesting it was very very interesting to see how the laws sometimes are not catching up with technology and they're trying but they're behind and there's also sort of things like that. Did you have to give them Google Glass, the judge and the lawyers? Is that why they <laughs> no, them? they just also wanted the publicity, I guess. <laughs> there was a lot of publicity. It was pretty public thing. Ah, a... All right. Where the heck was <laughs> I? I was under a rock, I guess. <laughs> Right. So obviously you and Diane, you and Diane have talked about this more, but it um it catalyzed a evolution in your career. That's right. That's yeah. where we were going. Here, and right? after that, uh, I joined multiple other startups, uh, all in the space of augmented reality. Until a year and a half ago, I joined Google, uh, also in their um, immersive reality um, division. They didn't hire you right away. You you 
gave them all this publicity for the glasses? They didn't hire you right away? It was a little inconvenient publicity at the time. It was uh, a mixed bag okay. of they didn't, they didn't necessarily appreciate it. It was a little bit of, yeah, no, it was a little bit of a PR crisis, actually. All right. Well, before we get into AI, what else is there, Dan? Because I'm curious about AI, too. I definitely, I, and I know it's it's on the agenda here. What else is there before? Well, that? I think the, the whole episode of the ticket made, makes me think about something that I also have attached to you whenever I think of you, which is you the, as this big community seeker or community creator or generator of community or search for, you know, a person in search of community which is another conversation we've had in depth, right? So what happened there is that you noticed overnight pretty much that there was a community behind you that were actually supporting you and saying, hey, that's not fair what happened to her. And that's why the lawyer helped for free. And that's why people come into your defense pretty much. Is that right? That's true. There was actually, you're just reminding me of a couple of things I omitted. There was a hashtag free Cecilia. That started running, but the the part that I that I'm really touched that I was really touched is because some people started to um, call me the Rosa Parks of wearables, and that is <laughs> such an amazing honor that I I don't think I deserve at all. But it was like just the glimpse of being able to be uh, at that level, you know, of um, being someone that and and I think this is something that I. Re- repeatedly after that strive for in my life is to be that Rosa Park, to be that very respected citizen that is backed by a community and that is pushing the limits and being bold. And um, like you say, Diana, communities make everything more impactful because uh, when you have a community, uh, the whole thing gets a different perspective and in communities is that you do movements, you change the world. You don't you don't change the world as an individual. Typically, um, I think it's what Derek Sievers says, that is a movement is not the first person, but the second person that follows too, and the third, and all the rest after that. That's what really creates a movement. So I believe anything we want to do to change the world has to really have that community to crystallize and to you know, manifest in the world. And the community could be an online community like it was very much in the case of Glass. Right. Which reminds me as well of how did you leap into um, actually what I saw of you first because once I once I saw you on Twitter, then of course I went to Google you, right? Because today we Google everybody pretty much. And the first thing I found was your TED Talk on taking risks. So you just talked about taking risks, and um, I think you have a beautiful perspective on that. Yeah, I kind of thought one day, well, the biggest risk really in today's world is not taking a risk. So it used to be we evolved from animals, and I looked at my cats, and we had three cats at one point, and unfortunately only one of them survived. And the one that survived was the very, very scaredy cat, like scared of everything, even the family that he's been living for a long time. So very, very cautious cat was a perfect strategy for him to survive. But when it comes to humanity today, we are so interconnected and there's a speed of things happening. 
And it's kind of the opposite. Taking risks is rewarded. So I'm the person that is always encouraging myself and others to look at fear in the eye and take the risk. Even take fear and curiosity. When there's that mix of fear and curiosity, I take it as a GPS. I take it as something that is telling me, yes, go there. There's something there. There's growth. There's experience. But of course, all of this makes sense depending on your goals in life a little bit. So if your goal in life is to be, and I'm going to do quotes, happy, then of course you're going to strive for that perfect happiness, comfortable, and um, that's one way to live your life. The way I live my life, I determined many years ago that my goal in life is to grow and experiment and experience and, uh, and manifest more of me. So with that goal in mind, risk, um, fear, these are things to conquer. These are things to, that call your name and tell you, hey, come, yes, more. And sometimes you get a little hurt and you got to undust and keep going. Sounds you like, know? see, you're speaking to an attitude of how to literally embrace the experience of being a human and being alive. Like you're saying, we're animals, but then we have obviously different, seemingly one way that we're different is what we call consciousness. But just to keep it simple, it sounds like, and tell me where I'm not hitting the mark quite right, you're speaking to an attitude about how to literally just accept and embrace and find, if I may, joy in the fact that growth, you're never going to need to stop growing. If you embrace that, you're, as you may put it in quotes, it's not what you meant by happy, but perhaps that is quote unquote happiness, embracing that you will never stop growing. That's true. Exactly. Yeah. You're never a final product. And that's why I love your name of your podcast. Like movement matters <laughs> because everything is a movement permanently. I think it's this illusion that things can be still and you can cling to things and, you know, get them to stay somewhere. But it's not true. Everything is moving all the time. Even when we're sleeping, there's things happening, right? So the universe is in yeah. constant change and recharge and reboot and um, stillness it doesn't really exist at all. So Right, we're digesting. Yeah. Our, our nervous system is never off, obviously. I was watching my friend's dog sleep the other night and it was so obvious and we just watched. It was fascinating. Oh my God. That dog is clearly chasing something, clearly dreaming. We could wa we watched the limbs move accordingly to how it would run. We watched the head move to grab something. This dog was asleep, and it was moving and it was running. Obviously, there was mm -hmm. movement. And th yeah, that is so not, that is such an obvious yet underappreciated aspect of reality that there's nothing finite, nothing stops, nothing ends. Exactly. And isn't that um, amazing, right? And with <laughs> well, it's terrifying to some, but it it can be amazing. I think that you know, to me, that just speaks to a cultural conditioning component. But um, and and thanks for acknowledging the name. Yeah, we just switched it to that, and it's it has everything to do with what you just said. Um, and and obviously, we realized that both end was a <laughs> careless name in the context of marketing, but both end is still relevant in that. 
there's a need to embrace your experience in its moment, in the quote unquote moment as it is, mm-hmm. and accept that it's going to change. That's that's a fundamental part of what we're speaking to as well. And and with that, I, I mean, again, we want to come to AI and whatever else is swirling around here. But I'm very, I was specifically interested in asking about drones and this idea of how drones can be how can you know cell phones i'm personally not interested <laughs> in wearing glasses <laughs> um in any context um but i think there's i've realized somehow it seems like the tech um evolution the way i would put it is how there there needs to be a way that we are continuing to push our creations whatever they are whether it's the next version of a cell phone which links to my idea about drones or ai how can we do that and still actually not even still but better remember or even remember that we're on earth and basically how can we continue to improve technologically and as animals on earth I'm interested in Star Trek. I'm interested in exploring the galaxy. I'm interested in all of that. And I want clean air, clean water. Um, and I want Earth. I want Earth to be Yeah, a this is a great question. How do we do both? Yeah. So for me, and obviously I'm speaking strictly personally, these are my own opinions and nothing else than my own opinions. But the way I, I, it helped me to see uh, evolution and technology in general is... Um, I heard Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly is a a deep thinker. He is one of the founders of Wired Magazine, and he actually lives near me in Pacifica, around that area. And uh, what he said is very, very interesting, and it it provides a framework to think about these things, at least for me. And the the way he sees it is, you know how a lot of the science fiction, and you brought Star Star Trek, I think, um, science fiction can be either utopian or dystopian it either is going to give you an image of oh my god everything is going to be so perfect in the future and or it's going to go and show you the very dark side of tech and how it can end really really bad in the future so uh what kevin thought is i don't think evolution if you look at the whole history of humans and technology and all we've been doing in this plan is being creating tools and technology since the beginning. And that's what probably one of the things differentiating us from animals or the rest of animals. So he thinks, okay, I don't think things go either so utopian or dystopian. I believe things, and he coined a new word that is called protopian. And it's one of my favorite words. So thank you for the question. And what he says is, okay, reality is it's a little more like this. We create some new tech and uh, it kind of fixes some things and solves some problems, but it also introduces a little bit of new problems. And then uh, as we introduce new problems, we kind of learn and we fix those new problems. And then we, we keep creating techs that create and fix problems. But in the end, we start having a lot more freedom. And I I really resonate with this answer because uh, I think what we're doing is also the way you have to think about it, or I do, is imagine you're a little kid and you start playing with things and all of a sudden, oh, you broke something, right? 
but you learned something. And maybe in the future, you'll be a little more careful not to break that anymore. And I feel like as a society, we are doing these same things. We are, sometimes we try to judge humanity as, as an adult that should be perfect, you know, almost like should be a god. And I think we're not. We're just this little kid that runs a little wild, that has some very uh, extreme tendencies sometimes, and that we need to learn. So in the process of learning, we've been trying to do things in the planet and we've been being very destructive. But at the same time, there is a part of humanity that is this beautiful consciousness. Uh, It's the one that has the ability to look at what we've done and improve it and think about, hey, how, how do we do this better? How do we deal with global warming? We kind of fucked up. What do we do now? You know, so I like to rescue uh, a little bit of more positive look at humanity, where we are a little more compassionate with ourselves. And when we see ourselves in the planet, yes, we did fuck up multiple times, but we have learned right? There's, there's been uh, fascism and we learned, oh, and there's been dictatorship and we learned and there's democracy and it can still be improved, you know? So there's capitalism. It's, a, it's the best system we probably came up with until today, but is it the best system ever? No, it has a ton of problems and we have been trying to solve capitalism problems in different ways and we haven't found the perfect way yet but we will we will find better solutions more cooperative more compassionate more green more organic so i'm very very optimistic for the protopian future where we keep creating things and we learn and we fuck up a little bit and we keep improving same as a person would i love it I, I really enjoy listening to you because I realize um, as I hear you that one of the things I appreciate the most about you personally in, as the unique individual that you are is that you have an amazing way to connect science and what is technology in this case specifically and spirituality and consciousness and, and how to see it all um, as one, which is what it is. So sometimes we tend to demonize one aspect and and emphasize the other one um and and you have found the interconnectedness of it and i know it's, it's it hasn't been an easy path uh, for you to be able to speak about spirituality or or the this consciousness aspect of technology mm-hmm. yeah that's another great subject uh, i do have still i'm trying to find in the spectrum, and I do have a theory that everything evolves into spectrums. And um, in the terms of spirituality, there's a spectrum from the very hard agnostic, um, I only believe what I see, scientific point of view. And on the other extreme, I believe in all these things that we might never be able to prove right or wrong. And I'm trying to find my, my place where um, I do have a rational mind, I do favor scientific thinking, but I also want to explore. I also understand that science doesn't have all the answers. So can I play in this space of, um, and we can call it spirituality, where there's things that happen that I don't understand and I cannot explain, 
but they certainly seem to happen. Like there's all these amazing coincidences that I take them as a sign that I'm connected to something probably larger than myself. And I don't know what that is. I don't need to define it. I don't need to have all the answers, but I I do need to allow myself to play in that space and see what happens and see what else is possible. Even crazy questions like, am I creating my own reality? Are we all together creating reality right now? Perfect, perfect. perfect. This is a perfect segue to something else I had on my list here, which is, would you talk to us about how have you used, and thank you for sharing this with me, but a year ago, um, access consciousness to create your reality? Oh, yeah. So access consciousness is a a community online, a group of people um, led by um, Dane here. And uh, there's another person, sorry, I don't remember the name, but I'm sure you guys can track these things on your notes. And um, what they do and what captured me, they have a whole set of programs, but the only tiny bit of them that I did get and I do preserve and cultivate is this idea of asking questions uh, to create and expand and grow. So instead of, uh, before them, I was doing affirmations. And actually, uh, we should talk maybe about conscious hiking. That is something that is very related to this. But those are activities I was doing into this new practice of conscious hiking. And um, I was doing affirmations at the beginning. And affirmations is this idea that if you tell some things to your subconscious, your subconscious will believe them and will find a way to manifest them in your world. But affirmations are hard because if I were to say right now um, something that I don't truly believe yet, which is the point of doing an affirmation, uh, and I could do an experiment and say something that I wish, one of my dreams that I haven't accomplished yet. Let's say my, my dream is to uh, have very meaningful connections and conversations with a large community of people that are like-minded. Let's say that's my dream. If I were to do an affirmation with that, I would say, I am connected to a community of like-minded people and we have deep connections and we share amazing conversations, okay? Uh, Because... Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but that's what typically people use when they want to change their mindset they look for an affirmation or they look for a way to reinforce an idea and there's this idea of fake it till you make it because you might not really believe what you're saying but the point is that you say it over and over again until some part of you exactly correct so that was more of the traditional thing that lewis hay started who knows in the 80s or 90s and uh, and that has an effect but it's kind of hard work because of what you just said diana when, when your mind doesn't believe it completely and you, you say this affirmation, you have like demons jumping at you, you know, and they're like, no, that's not true. And you have to deal with all this in your own head. Uh, eventually, you can overcome it by repetition. But this new idea from access consciousness is what would happen if I turn an affirmation into a question? So if I were to, so I can use my curiosity and my imagination in the question. So I would ask, how would it feel if I'm, or when I'm connected to a large community of like-minded people and sharing amazing conversations? Wow, it feels lighter, you know? It just, I'm starting to already expand into that 
by the curiosity of asking this question. So uh, I think that's, uh, I started testing this and I love experimentation. So I love to try things. I, I always will give something a try as crazy as it can be. So I did try this and I started to see amazing results. I started to ask questions like, how did I get so lucky? Or what else is possible? Or sometimes when feeling something that I don't truly like, I would ask myself, who does this belong to? And I saw it pop like a little bubble that's gone. Or, or asking questions about, um, oh, sorry, I had one more, but I just lost it. Who does this belong uh, to? Who does this belong to is a powerful one. I've used it a lot. Because sometimes this feeling kind of comes to me. And I know it's not mine. Mm. I know it's not mine. It might be, you know, either historically from my family transmitted to me through conditioning, or it might be somebody I'm working with or something I heard or news that are filtering in or whatever. And the moment I can say, wait, who does this belong to? Then me separates from it and it kind of lifts off like a backpack. It's beautiful. It's like I just drop it. Or when you have something that you don't truly like, like something happens to you and you find yourself in this situation where you're like having something that is hard to accept in your life. And then you can ask yourself, what is right about this that I'm not seeing? And after a couple of times of saying, what is right about this that I'm not seeing, you can completely see the good in what you before thought it was completely bad. So that's amazing transformation right there. Yeah, always asking questions has a benefit too because you don't have to have the answer. But I, I do that in the Feldenkrais classes a lot as well. It's just posing the question to your subconscious or unconscious is, is enough and the rest gets worked out somewhere. You don't have to have the answer. Mm -hmm. The subconscious is an amazing, I think it's one of the most, um, what's the word? One of the least valued things in, in this present time, we don't understand. We are so centered on the conscious part of our minds and we don't truly really understand that there's this, amazing sea of things happening below the surface and we only are seeing like the tip of the iceberg so the things we become aware of are a tiny part of us and through dreams through meditation through questions uh, when we can get more of us and access that subconscious that is a lot bigger it's almost like Imagine we are in the pre-Aristotelian uh, time where we still don't know that the, the earth, we believe still the earth is the center of the universe. And this is the same what's happening with consciousness. Like we believe uh, consciousness is at the center of the universe and there's all this subconscious sea of things happening that really make us who we are. Yeah, 100%. Did you hear the latest uh, conversation um, with between Josh Waitzkin and Tim Ferriss, by the way? I did, yeah. Well, Josh talks about this asking what is the most important thing before oh, you go yes. to bed. Mm -hmm. And before you go to bed, last thing you do and you ask, and by the way, who, whoever doesn't know who Josh Waitzkin is, um, he there's a movie based on his life called Searching for Bobby Fisher. Josh is a, he's been a prodigy in four disciplines at this point in his mid-30s. You know, like master chess player, jujitsu, tai chi, push hands, 
now is into foiling, which is the future of surfing. He's an amazing guy. He's always in the search for mastery. And he wrote an amazing book called The Art of Learning. I, I really look up to Josh because he's training masters, you know. So he's really, um, really explored how to learn, the art of how to learn. And, and he says, well, one thing you can do is just leave it up to your subconscious, whatever you want to work out. So, so the night um, before you go to bed, you ask yourself, what is the most important question? And, and then you wake up. And you ask yourself, what is the most important question? You just you just go journaling into the answer. You don't even try to think about it, but sit down, meditate, get up from meditation, write it, let your subconscious work it out. But the one piece that he was talking, I knew about that from before, but one thing that he mentioned that is new to me is that he says, you know, you go to the bathroom, you go to your phone, you spend all that crazy, you know, creative time from being in the bathroom with your phone you just leave the phone go into the bathroom ask yourself go to the toilet and you ask yourself what's the most important question and you let yourself kind of just continue working in those dead times right where, where you would be putting your mind away from the most important question and just waste time yeah that's amazing that's very cool and and you brought up journaling i don't know if that's a good place to go but I'm very passionate about it yeah sure go ahead of so course. I think both uh, Diana and me we both independently started to do voice journaling and that's an amazing avenue to self-exploration and questioning so that, that's instead of writing it yeah when you record your exactly yeah, I've seen Diana's got me into doing that a little you bit tried too. it it's very yeah, it's totally easier on some levels, <laughs> for sure, um, than using a pen or a pencil. Yes. Yeah, it's definitely easier on many levels. Yeah, I feel like oral communication, it is a little more primitive in our brain also than writing. So in a way, I started to see that it taps into other parts of the brain and it taps into the social brain too. Because when you're having a conversation, typically you're talking to another person. And I find that other parts of my brain are engaged when I'm talking versus in my own mind trying to think or writing. So I think it's very interesting tool to think deeply. So I start with a few prompts. I used to start with just gratitude journaling, but uh, I've, I've been switching through also listening to Jerry Colon and Tim Ferriss talk about journaling. And I've been switching to use other prompts such as uh, what I'm feeling right now. So start kind of dumping those feelings. I have started experimenting very recently with leaving other voices in my head come out in conversation, which can sound weird, but we all have these voices that we try not to acknowledge, but they're still there. And sometimes they're telling us the most horrible things, things we would never tell to another friend or person ever, right? So I started to acknowledge them. Joe seems yeah. to know a thing about voices. We're getting a, a, an oral acknowledgement right now. Joe's <laughs> journaling right now, oh, too, really? about his voice. Amazing. Yeah. So, um, I uh, did the artist way. Yes. And Tim Ferriss touches on that. And uh, that was, like, just the most amazing, you know, just inspiring. And You do it still. 
Um, I haven't done the three pages in a little bit, but when I do it, it's like the most clarity. And I notice that my handwriting changes like mm. three times within my process, like of the different voices. It's pretty awesome. Yes. It's so profound. And, you can, and, 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 and so, I find yeah, that my voices feeling. are many times are very wrong too. Like they don't even know what they're saying. They're just saying this stuff. And I'm like, well, you know what? It's not so true, you know? So it's very... Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, it's great to give voices to those things because then it's easier to like differentiate what I'm feeding myself, what I choose to believe mm. or what, you know, who's running the show. Yeah, like creating more silence as well in your head, right? Like, uh, Yeah, which we all enjoy. And that's, you know, the... Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> silence from doing nothing. But um, the voices are making me think back to what you and Diana were just discussing um, and saying about who does that belong to? How did you word it? Where does that, who does that belong to? Who does this belong to? Yeah, that's um, right. And I, this is a sincere question I ask myself um, that I never obviously can answer. I don't even know if subconsciousness is something I can think of as mine or our. You know, is it my subconsciousness or is it our subconsciousness? And in that respect, are these voices mine or are they ours or do they just exist? The identification component with subconsciousness is something that I, you know, I've studied enough. I have a, a, enough of a background. Like I, I can keep up with talking about Jung and, <laughs> and the history of psychoanalysis, et cetera. And, but I don't have an answer to that. Like, gosh, is it mine or is it ours or both or wow and i don't have a clue where to go with that it's just something that i wonder a lot i have some theory of course about that too just, just so you guys know whoever's <laughs> listening to this c has the most theories i've ever <laughs> come across in my whole life the bulk of your theories could fill in whole encyclopedias and i love that you don't need to be right or wrong you just have this theory i love it what's your theory on that i yeah, figured you'd totally. have one that's why so, i wanted yeah. to pose it because it's yeah, I, I don't have one. I just wonder. Well, she's, she's thought it through. Huh? Good. Let's yeah. hear it. Theories are very flexible in me. So any any moment, I'm super ready to chat with someone and, and transform the theory into something else. So I love to build theories with other people as well. But this, what I, what I, what kind of helped me understand this is a little bit of quantum physics. And I'm no expert by any means. But there's this idea that um, a particle can be a wave and a particle at the same time. And uh, I think as humans, we also have this kind of dualistic uh, experience where we can be the separate being, but we also could have the ability to, back, to go back to the whole and be uh, the non-dualistic existence of being the whole. So I feel like uh, many, most of the time in my human experience, I am the particle. I am uh, manifested in a physical way as a separate individual who uh, has been imprinted by others, but is ultimately uh, its own mind, uh, which I have the power to transform very deeply, and which is the art that we all share and enjoy of changing ourselves and taking control of our voices and all of that that we talk. So I have, as a particle, I have my own subconscious mind and my own conscious mind of which I'm aware right now. But I also have the ability 
same as the particle that can be the wave, uh, I could also become the wave where I'm connected to every other being in existence and I'm connected to the whole universe as a, as a whole. And in that non-dualistic and dualistic experience is where we, where we dwell. We, we tap into the non-dualistic when we meditate in certain states, in certain mindsets, but ultimately, while we have this physical existence, we are a little bit of the particle with our own existence. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. I think it makes sense to the three of us. It looks like yeah, we're all nodding. Yeah, and I, I get that from a purely, um, my background is more in religious studies and Taoism in, in particular, Eastern traditions, so to speak, in particular. Um, with some psychology and getting into history of Western philosophy, et cetera. But I can understand that from a complete um, materialistic standpoint. Like I used to think that religious and spiritual concepts could be boiled down to um, what we now know about what you're saying with quantum physics and astrophysics as well, and the other side of it, if you will. Um, and that in reality, everything is one and you know our very flesh will as the Taoist parables will say become the dirt and the tree and the very fruit that a bird will eventually eat someday and there's an inherent unity in a very quote-unquote material sense and that and that makes complete sense the questions that I have and you're it's not like the theory you just threw out there isn't doesn't directly link in there it's just mm -hmm. Consciousness is obviously so um, seemingly that's where the both and may completely lie. And it, I wonder, you know, single cell organisms, we, we have a sense that there's consciousness, right? Or there's a reactivity that we can see in a microscope. Um, and life itself requires that metabolism. And uh, I forget the, the core principles of biology, but the ability to metabolize, which requires a sense of otherness, et cetera, et cetera. But what, I wonder if being human is inherently um, about knowing the, <laughs> the the dichotomy doesn't really exist. If our our potential is to know and to live with that awareness that it looks separate, there's this sense of uh, distinction, but we can operate with an awareness that that's not the whole story. Mm -hmm. It seems like sometimes that's the, that's the peak of human consciousness, at least thus far. And again, I keep wanting to know how the heck would you program that into AI, but we can... <laughs> Okay, um, so there's there's some people that studied AI, like Marvin Minsky, uh, who is no longer with us, but it was one of the scientists that studied uh, the mind and artificial intelligence the most. And um, what he, he has a book that is called uh, The Society of the Mind, where he explains a series of processes that he sees as part of intelligence. But then he has a new book, newer book after that, that is called The Emotional Machine. And in this book, he really went and thought, he, he starts almost with this question of how can I instill goals into a machine? 
because if the machine doesn't have goals, it won't be able to be an intelligent being, right? It has to have some kind of a goal. And he, for, for doing this, he mostly studied how a kid learns. And in looking at how a kid learns, he realizes that when you are a kid, you have these important people in your life, could be your parents, your teachers, and people that are close to you as you're growing up. And these people typically will instill either proud or shame and a combination of pride and shame on everything you do by these imprinters ends up forming a you that has certain goals. And this might be a little bit too materialistic and simplistic, obviously, but in a way, I, I have been convinced by this book uh, by Marvin Minsky that you can instill goals in a computer. And um, computers can learn in a way uh, a brain learns. So there's, there's two sides of things. And unfortunately, there's not a very clear definition of consciousness. So that's where when you say a bacteria or a unicellular being can have consciousness, I would, I would have a little bit of a problem with that in my definition of consciousness. So uh, it, it, it gets a little semantic in the discussion. But overall, it should, in theory, with what I know today, I, I would think, and it's his personal opinion again, I would think that it, it should be possible to um, eventually get to a generalized intelligence that is artificial just by the effect of having so many neurons connected. So by having the amount of parallel processing that a brain has, um, for instance, if you put it into artificial network of nodes, that connect uh, sufficiently, eventually they will start learning patterns and learning thresholds and connecting in more meaningful ways that exteriorly, you're gonna be having a very hard time differentiating from what you call consciousness. And the problem will become, how will we know? So when we create such a machine, how will we know that the subjective experience of the machine is the same as your subjective experience. And we're gonna have a very hard time uh, both demonstrating that it's not the same or demonstrating that it is the same. We're gonna have a hard time ultimately knowing if it is the same or not. Does time have anything, any, any importance here in the, in the equation? Like right now, there's a simultaneity of my subjective experience that can, can a computer ever mimic to have this whatever you want to call it, knowing, feeling, sensation. We can be more, we can be a little smaller in our, in our variables here. So consciousness is this big, broad, very semantic, um, you know, challenged term, but we can talk about uh, a sensation or a feeling or, or a knowing that, that is subjective and is happening right now in real time. Is that what you're saying, that eventually computers could network process on their own? Yes, eventually you're going to have a machine that is going to report, I'm going to use the word report, having uh, a subjective experience of the color red and of meeting you and uh, of being alive and of, you know, having some kind of input and output. So, um I believe we're going to eventually see a machine that is going to report all these same things in the same way we report them. And it's going to be in the outside. It's going to be very hard to differentiate 
between a, a being that is um, artificial and a being that is more biological, let's call it. Um, that I think it will happen in time. It's just a matter of time, definitely, for that to happen. Shall we go into the big question that I that I another common being we have is Naval Ravikant, and I love his answer to this, but I don't know if you agree with it. And the question is, would a machine would would be ever um, able to program itself faster than we could ever imagine so it would potentially take over <laughs> there's a lot of risks uh, of course associated with uh, the time that we eventually uh, accomplish super intelligence uh, what is called generalized super intelligence so um, one of them is that the machine uh, kind of disown us we create the machine but the machine at some point doesn't remember or care that we created them and doesn't recognize us as the creator. And if we are having competitive need for resources, um, things could go sour. We have a lot of time to figure this out. This is far, far away. Uh, some, of some of the people think that if we merge with the machine, we avoid the problem of having to choose between them or us. That's one way. Uh, uploading ourselves or there's different ways in which we could merge with the machine. Uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, another way is more symbiotic. Imagine, for instance, bacteria. Bacteria is living inside our body in the billions, in the numbers of billions, and uh, we're all living peacefully and to a certain extent, and I'm sure there's little battles happening in your uh, gut right now, but for the most part, we have a pacific collaborative existence. We actually couldn't live without these bacteria. These tiny bacteria have the ability to generate incredible amounts of substances in our blood and our streams and our bodies that are really helpful or can be harmful. So I think the relationship between, between um, us and these AIs in the future might be more similar to uh, the relationship that we have with bacteria. We don't connect directly. We don't really speak the same language or think in the same ways, but we still are together collaborating and striving together. So that's another way to, to think about it. Would it be possible to share? I don't know if your NDA prevents you from sharing this, but or is it just your dream or thought into the future where, remember you talked to me about this, wearables that we could have i would i would wear glasses i wear glasses by the way they're inside my 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 eyeball right now um uh where where these wearables would give you information about the, the environment around you and the people that you come across remember we're walking on this beautiful beach and there's a lot of people and there's these people playing these people walking this one playing with the dog this woman reading sitting down mika mika is that her name uh, and we Micah, we are connected with this one person, and we we um that kind of led us into thinking, wow, how how cool would it be if you could have a device that you would be wearing that could scan this whole environment, and from all the possible connections that you could or could not make with all these people here, would point at you and say that person has three, four different interests similar to yours. And that's a potential very good match for you right now, for friendship, for networking, for romantically, whatever it is, right? 
and and would make that bridge between humans a little easier maybe or different is that just a thought a dream possibility can we talk about it that's the one where i probably will have to skip so sorry i i yeah it's uh, those are things that are being worked in in different parts uh, in different companies at this time but that that's a little bit of the area where i'm directly involved for my work and i would rather well, yeah, so regardless of your NDA, we can obviously talk about the idea, I'm sure. So, and, and don't tell me if I'm wrong here. We can um, talk. She can't answer. Yeah, we can just talk about the idea. And because I'm going to, I'm going to play the skeptic here, um, which is extremely easy for me in this regard. And just simply ask the question is just people talking about this idea. Why would we want that? I want to know. I, I pretend I, or I don't have to pretend. I would like uh, to explore why that would be valuable. What's the value in that? So That's imagine the, the, some... that as people, um, I think uh, part of what I'm going to kind of go a little bit off topic, but it's a topic I'm very passionate about. That is how when we see other people, sometimes we don't see each other. Uh, we just go past each other and we ignored. We learned to ignore each other because we live in big cities and we can't stop all the time to take the time to know every person we pass by. We would never get anywhere. We would never get to work. We'd never do anything valuable if we wouldn't focus on what we're trying to accomplish. But at the same time, I feel like uh, we lost something that is very um, core to our human being that is seeing each other. And I learned from my dog, if I go on a walk with my dog, she would never, ever ignore another dog. Like there's no way. It doesn't matter if it's little or blue or or red or big. It doesn't matter. It, my dog will see the other dog, and they will see each other, right? And I think that's our nature, and uh, it's a possibility. Like Diana was saying, that technology will help us um, see each other better, or at least uh, understand who's around us and how we could connect in deeper ways with people that we have nearby. Hmm. Yeah, I've thought as I drive on busy highways at times, just, wow, this is a very uh, unique scenario where I can be around hundreds of people and have literally no interaction other than just getting by them, just zooming by them and mm -hmm. basically on one level wishing they weren't there. And of course, that's the same as a, on a sidewalk in a city or... Um, <laughs> Yeah, or passing any crowd, anywhere that it's crowded. Um, and I guess the root of my question is to what extent is, yeah, theoretically some kind of quote-unquote technology could help that, but it's also back to your TED Talk, or what I think was the part of the content of your TED Talk, it's uh, inherently needed that we take the risk of... Um, well, being vulnerable and seeing if somebody that we have a feeling about is worth connecting with. Um, and, and that's also... Yeah, and that's maybe also, there's a both yeah, and here. Exactly. Um, yes. Both and here. Um, yeah, I'm obviously just thinking out loud. I'm thinking about the movie Her quite a bit right now. Did you ever see oh, it? One of my favorite movies, absolutely good fucking flick it's so spot on with so much of what we're talking about here mm -hmm. it's neither dystopian or utopian it sounds a little like what you said Pro what's that word 
Protopian. Protopian. I think that it it's the one of the only movies I can think of that has a what I'm imagining could be a Protopian. Very true vibe to it. Very true. That's yeah, probably it's why it's one of my favorites. Yeah. It's beautiful, obviously, but and because it, it's neither condemning nor condoning. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exploring. Question. It's exploring possibilities, exploring. which is, I think, the most beautiful. Yeah, and there's no conclusion. I think um, there's there's a question, though, of course, because he has a tough time connecting with real humans, and he does connect with real mm-hmm. humans. Um, he being the main character. Obviously, people have seen the movie, but when they bring in Alan Watts, I think that's where it gets really juicy and it comes to what we're talking about right now. Like what? Yeah, like you said, single-celled organisms. That might not be consciousness. It probably isn't, so especially not in the sense that we could obviously relate to it. Um, so what is um, this idea of connecting through technology and connecting with? Yeah, it's how. Do, yeah, we've got to live in these questions for sure. Um, there's a side of me that always errs on the side uh, on the human technology. Like, let's use our bodies and. And obviously that can be messy though. So what do we do? But well, but if you if you think about uh, sorry, Diana. No, no, go ahead. There's just some component. If you think of... about the evolution, though, yeah, because you're saying I think people make a too big a distinction on biological, and some people even call it oh, biological is natural, and all these things are artificial, which is a helpful word to understand things that we build versus things that. Uh, are biological but at the same time you could think about the universe uh, as a whole again and when you think of the universe as a whole let's say you want to have it start in the big bang or big bounds uh, particles are starting to be uh, united in more complex atoms atoms start getting to unite into molecules molecules into you know unicellular beings in the planet earth and then larger beings. Um, But if you think about it, there's nothing unnatural about us creating. If we are natural, whatever we create is also natural. It's also a part of the universe. And it's certainly a part of the evolution. So I think the the universe is this complexity creating entity. And uh, we're going to keep creating, it will keep spinning and creating complexity. And if the next thing in complexity is you know, based on silicon versus biology, I have no problem recognizing still the beauty and the amazingness of evolution in it. Yeah, neither do I at this point. I've definitely grown in that regard. Neither do I at this point, as long as we're not, like we said about a half an hour or so ago, um, being excessive, which isn't my way of saying destructive, unnecessarily destructive. Um, yeah. And obviously that, you know, we're all on the same page about that. Um, I think it's always, I'm always just wondering about the excess because any, yeah, any manipulate, I see any kind of manipulation of quote unquote, the natural world, which many creatures do, obviously birds and beavers being some of the most obvious examples, but any manipulation of the natural world, so to speak, natural state could be arguably something the the movement to do that is technological. It's not like we're going to stop that. It's just a matter of 
how much well or or being aware or being cautious or being really thoughtful i mean those are the there's ways to do it and that's exactly one of my points that i've been trying to make in the past is that uh when when it comes to technology it's not about uh not doing it or doing it there's not a, a it's how we do it so the beauty of embracing technology versus resisting or fearing technology is that if we don't fear it, we can embrace it and drive it. And then we can drive it to places where there's more compassionate uses, there's more equality about it, there's a more democratic use of technology. Uh, so uh, if we don't fear it and we don't resist it, but we embrace it and drive it. I think we end it up with a better lot like all those innovations where at the beginning people didn't know what to make of them, so it was easier to ward off. But actually, with a little more understanding and education, we can all see how they can benefit on a good middle way type measure, right? Um, Absolutely. And actually, do you know that if you look at history, like yeah. books were feared so and resisted yeah. back in the time. So imagine that. And today is like the panacea of the perfect technology that is like most, uh, you know, and, and, and it was also mm-hmm. people were afraid, people resisted it. And eventually we yeah. all adopted them and we made totally. a good thing out of it. Hey, and just so because that's a I great know example. I'm aware of time and very respectful of your time and our time um, here, um, I have a couple other things I want to ask you about. One of them is, what is conscious hiking? <laughs> sure. So conscious hiking is uh, something we created with a friend in Southern California. She was going through a little bit of a rough time, and we were going out for work breaks together in our little walks. And uh, as she was going through a tough time, conversations could become a little negative. So I suggested to her to do two minutes of just positive speaking, like just talking in a positive outlook, in a positive mindset. And those two minutes became like a whole hour of us going into full mode of practicing different mindfulness tools, including affirmations and questions and silent and um, and doing this in a mountain in San Diego area. So uh, we coined this word conscious hiking that eventually we hope to share with more people where it's just this mindfulness in a hike where you really are trying to uh, put the best of your mind for a whole session. That's essentially it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great concept and it's hard to beat in those mountains sometimes over there where you have a mountain and the ocean and the, the clouds and amazing sounds. It's just like it's hard to fuck it up, right? You have to be really not interested mm-hmm. in diving into yourself um, for, for it to work, for it not to work. So, yeah, I, want, I wanted people to know about that because as a concept, it's just beautiful and it's easy to, to, to steal in a way and to just practice here. Could be we have so many beautiful places to hike around here in Bucks County that um, just that idea I think can reframe a lot for people, including myself, where sometimes you're walking and instead of being in nature with yourself, you're playing and replaying the mental loop, and sometimes it's not the most positive. So thank you for 
for mm-hmm. sharing that. Um, and I want to just make clear for for us all here that you visited Koro when very, very, very early days of Koro, I would say beginning of January. I don't know if you remember, um, Colin. Yes. Uh, I know you Absolutely. remember, but I'm not sure. Yeah, oh, uh, we were just opened and, and you got into the ice bath. So how was that? How was that experience mm-hmm. for you? It was uh, it was a little bit intimidating at the beginning, but it was amazing feeling in the end, uh, alternating between the the tub, the ice tub, and the sauna, which I already loved. The sauna is amazing too. So that combination, um, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I I only did this the one time, and um, I know that the effects compound as you keep doing it. So I'm still very curious. Still very curious about the effects, you said, or the possibilities mm-hmm. of what? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, you've done it uh, regularly since then, right? You've been doing it at your local ice bathing studio over there, right? I haven't. I haven't. I haven't <laughs> what, about, what about your cold showers, C? Have you been at least doing your cold showers? Uh, cold showers, I tried. I, I, I'll confess, I haven't been so good on them. I do actually extreme heat showers, which... I hear it also has some effects therapeutically. Um, so that's my experience. <laughs> well, the, do you get in the Pacific Ocean ever? Uh, occasionally. Occasionally. Yeah. It can be cold, but I, I do a walk with my feet uh, wet in the ocean regularly, but I don't very often go at my knee or go full swim on the ocean. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Wim Hof uh, in the beginning. Um, has he had an impact on the community over there at all in Silicon Valley? Or has this has the awareness of this, I like to say, technology, this free technology, had an impact on anybody that you know over there? I think it's, your... uh, it's prevalent. Yeah, I think it's there's a lot of that. Um... And I think definitely Wim Hof was the person. Does Google have an ice bathing room yet? I don't think so. We have massage rooms (laughs) and all sorts of things, but no, we we should explore that. Yeah, we got to, should we send a letter to the CEO? Yeah, we we can do something. We could come out and do a demo. Some experiment, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody nearby. We probably are the closest ones. We'll come over from Pennsylvania. (laughs) You're just let's set that date actually before we get off here sure um yeah i would assume it's very in the ether over there um i don't pretend to know much about silicon valley culture i think the my <laughs> i watch the show <laughs> and it's wonderful um can't i can't wait for i think season six to come back uh to start mm-hmm. but is there a general interest in i'd say um yeah well what you just referred to as a conscious hiking um that's linked with ice bathing i mean we just yeah it's all the same here in california people are very health conscious very aware a little bit of hippie that's still you can breathe in here so there's definitely all of these Mm. things there's interest and there's uh, movement and there's uh, you know, people trying things, definitely. A lot of ecstatic dancing. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of 
pretty much anything. There's not a big ice bathing movement though in Silicon Valley. There might be. I, I'm not directly. I'm not directly. You're aware of. Okay. What else is on the list here? I have this this um, interest in you sharing a little bit about your parenting wisdom because you have three beautiful kids, a little older than mine. We've talked about parenting a lot, among other things. And here, Colin has a child. I have two, and I, I know we have some listeners that are parents themselves. And your your view on parenting is very interesting. What can you share about that? So as a parent, I typically refer myself as a very atypical um, uh, parent. Uh, I've been fairly out of the mainstream in terms of I don't see my kids as a vessel that I need to fill so that they can uh, go the safe path of doing what everybody else is doing so that, you know, they get there or they are successful between quotes or whatever it is. So my my parenting style is a little more alternative and it's more about just i'm just there to support them i'm just there to show if i if i'm going to give them any information it's all coming from my example of what i choose in my life and not so much on my talking and telling them what to do and in general I'm just there to tell them, hey, that might be dangerous. You might fall if you do that. And then I, I let them fall. And then I will be there also to point out, like, remember, we kind of talked about that and this is what happened. But, I, but I'm not there to prevent them from experimenting and trying things by themselves, which sometimes can be very scary as a parent. But this is the route I chose. Uh, I also am very opposed to homework and things outside of the school hours. So I, I, my kids uh, have not done homework ever, practically, until they get to um, very high end of high school or even college. And uh, at one point, we, <laughs> yeah. But going to, sorry, see, uh, just making the, the note that they are in the public system. So they're supposed to do homework. It's just you chose for them yes. not to, and that was okay for the teachers. It's, it's, it's apparently an option we all have. Yes, well, we their grades will do. suffer. People will call you from school, and you'll have to go and talk to teachers and tell them that, yes, you understand, and sorry, but uh, you'll try to be better or something. And Or you can really tell them your beliefs. But essentially, you will pick a few battles on the way. But I was very convinced by my daughter when she was seven or eight, uh, she comes back from school. It's already four in the afternoon. And she had this little note, sticky note with things she wanted to do with her time. And I'm like, this poor kid, she's been the whole day at school. And now she has supposed to do homework instead of her beautiful list of things that she wants to experiment with. And I'm like, I can't. I can't make her do homework. She has her list. She has to follow her own curiosity. I believe the, the educational system is very archaic and it's based on an industrial era that had very different needs educationally than the needs we have today. So I'd rather her follow her curiosity and explore and experiment on her own needs than follow someone else's lead on what she should be learning and uh, right now, my oldest one is 19. She just turned 19, and she finally found her own path of what she really wants to do, which has to do with computer science. And 
she's very applied to it. And I'm I'm like, oh, okay, okay, I guess one went well because this is really an experiment. I lived it as an experiment and uh, it was a little scary at times, I'll confess. That's beautiful. And it's obvious that uh, the structure you're allowing them to explore will pay off, as you just said, such that they'll have a, a sense of autonomy and they'll maintain the childish wonder and drive to explore and discover things on their own, which is tragically lost in some people, if not many. Um, do you find that there are many people taking your lead or following your lead here? Is this a, something of a um, where there's one, there are many often. Is there, are I there think people doing some this? people are following their kids' lead. So as kids become teenagers, oh, yeah. they're showing <laughs> their parents and they're telling them, you know what, I don't want to study. I don't. I want to go do music. So I have friends that have kids that are telling them, like, fuck that. I, I want to do something else. And uh, they're finding their own path. So I think that's more common than parents letting them from the beginning, like, like I did. I think it's a little, a little out there. Um, but okay. uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's not a California. It's not something written in the public school footnotes. Like, there's a movement. Yeah, there's a movement called unschooling <laughs> in California and and whole United States, which is very very. Int- I find it very interesting. Where kids yeah. go together, they have no grades, and they just play and do whatever the hell they want. And these kids end up being amazing people. Yeah, I've read quite a bit on that one. It's usually not even something that happened. It's usually something that happens outside of a quote unquote school. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so, democratic schools, uh, and then there's unschooling, which is not even a school. Yeah, I think this is a this is a good um, moment to talk a little bit broader about again how can te- technology serve us in this context because it reminds me of uh, conversations we had based on. Again, Naval Ravikant's idea of what the ideal school would look like, which is basically taking advantage of all this knowledge we have stored um, in the internet and follow letting kids. He said something like that. I'm sorry, Naval, if I'm totally like mis- misquoting this, but something like you have to give each kid an iPad with access to all the library of the world that is stored there and let them just learn whatever they want to learn. And if they want to learn, you know, technology, they will learn that. If they want to learn science, they will learn that. If they want interested in art, they will do that. And instead of us choosing for them a bunch of stuff they have to memorize so they can become really good at repeating what we think is important. So they now, a bunch of stuff that no one needs to memorize anymore because it's already there, available at a fingertip whenever you need it. Um, and learn how to really quietly sit at a desk for eight hours a day, which is what you need to do in a factory or in an office. Just let them explore their creativity. So I remember when I told you that Sophia, my oldest daughter, wanted to learn how to code and you sent me to Khan Academy and you said she can learn how to code by just playing and she doesn't have to be more than six, seven years old, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it's uh, because the, the ulti- ultimately the questions are what matters, not not having answers. Answers are cheap, like Kevin Kelly says, and you go to the internet, you find answers, right? But uh, coming up with the questions, and that's the curiosity that these kids have, 
that we don't want to let that die. So I think what I, if I were to create a school myself, I would create a school where there are coaches and there's no program. Exactly like you said, people have access to information and they have coaches that help them kind of, you know, find out and figure out what's interesting and what else, what's next for them. But uh, not a set program completely individualized yeah i was gonna say a lot of exploration a lot of making mistakes because big mis big big learning cannot take place without making mistakes mm -hmm. um, so, which is the opposite of memorize to hit a hundred on the test and get it always right and suffer if you don't get it right it's just the opposite of true learning so and I'm also afraid. probably i would say a good dose of physical movement and activity and outdoor play and just being outside which is not really on the diet mm -hmm. of these kids that spend all day inside uh, if it's raining or too cold or too hot or whatever so uh, more balanced, right? And, and following what they do naturally. If you see kids naturally, they would play and pretend all sorts of things on their own time, even teach themselves how to read and write. I saw it with my own mm. kids. They don't need us as much as we think they do. They don't. They don't. They, will, they have the perfect machine to go learn. They already have it. Which machine is that? <laughs> That's what I, all right, just, just to be sure. Our own minds. <laughs> we're already equipped. Yeah. Oh, man. No. I, uh, <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm getting so, to a point where I don't want to, I don't want, I want to keep going down here because there are definitely some, uh, well, you brought up some, something earlier about how capitalism is the best thus far and our, many of our structures make, you know, there's a lot that, we can identify and, and label as the best thus far. And so much of what we're discussing now is really, we're exploring obviously ideas about how we can do certain things better. And, and um, right now I'm just thinking, about, have you ever studied anything related to, um, there's some older versions of this, definitely post-World War II, but definitely even older than that. And then there's some newer um, versions of this that have come out, not in book form, but definitely through, um, yeah, other media, but just alternative communal structures. Is that something that you're at all interested in or paid attention to? See? I did when I was in my teenage years, become very interested about cooperatives. And um, it seems like now with Bitcoin, there's some of these organizations that become cooperatives. One idea that I that I had in, in the past is, you know how people come together to create software, and this is the open source mm -hmm. software movement. Uh, I thought, how about creating open companies instead of just the source code uh, collaboration, really creating companies where everybody that is using the company and uh, creating the company are actually owners. So if I'm doing, uh, if I'm posting in a social media site, um, I should be part owner of the site and I should be part coder and part. So this idea of open company is something I think probably the most similar to what you're saying that I, in my geek, <laughs> you know, uh, vision of the world have come up with. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I know enough about that to speak to it. I guess the root of my question was we're talking about parenting is um, I'm always interested in how are I, well, I think there are ways to make so many 
parts of our world operate easier and function easier. And a big part of our struggle is that we don't even know how to easily use our own bodies. Hence, what we do. Hence, we do what we do on a very basic level at Kuru. Movement matters, and understanding how to move more easily and be at ease with oneself on a purely physiological, biomechanical, skeletal, muscular, etc. level. Um, the ability for that to change and for us to be more aware of that, to me, is it's a fact. It's just directly related to our ability to um, catalyze more ease on a macro level, a social level, a cultural level. And I always think that somehow part of what needs to shift is a literal more uh, communal lifestyle and we need to shift to a lit more literally communal lifestyle um yeah. i like that a lot that? in terms of kids yeah. it makes it takes a village right yeah it and it, village, yeah right? and i'm trying to avoid cliches like that because yeah. it gets lost in but the ether but that one is really good yeah yeah so a lot of what i've actually studied is ideas about that and theories about that and um, I've even explored it with myself and with my son, and I don't see any way around that as part of this evolution, especially when it comes to allow or creating a, um, an environment for our children to continue to explore and, and changing that narrative for them to um, stay as we, the three of us, recognize they can, which is... Um, uh, grateful for the all to be engaged in the all of reality, not to lose that. Um, Jason Silver is really good yeah. at rapping on that. I don't know if you've ever heard him talk about that. No. Yeah, yeah we talked no. about him. You, we, I bet you would like him. <laughs> you know, you know who he's talking about. Jason Silva. When we spoke about creativity, and he talked oh, about yeah. creativity yes. and madness. Um, but still, mm -hmm. though, I think I want to rescue a point here, which is there is a role for guidance and there is a role for mentors within these contexts so i know it's a hard topic for you because but i'm also here to ask the uncomfortable questions so so what is the role for mentors in your life and maybe in general um mentors properly i have a mentor <laughs> here at google actually um and i i think it's it's super important, but it depends on the person, how the mentorship relates. So I don't think there's only one way to have mentors. Uh, I have a hard time personally having a mentor that I follow to the T and that I uh, kind of, I'm just a questioner. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Gretchen Rubin's personality types. Yeah, I kind of, I'm a questioner. So even if I have a mentor, I can't avoid questioning my mentor as I question myself, as I question everything in the entire planet. So I think that's where the mentorship for me has had uh, a little bit of a hard time in terms of mentors uh, not always like to be questioned. <laughs> and then, uh, so you have to find the right kind of mentors that don't expect you to leave them as the, if they were a god, just a coach. So I have, a, uh, I have an easier time with, with coaches and with um, um, people that uh, are accompanying you. And that's also the kind of mentor I am. 
So if I'm a mentor to someone, I don't have all the answers for this person. I might have questions, you know, for this person, but I definitely don't have the answers. The answers have to come from the mentee. So, yeah, it's it's not a hierarchical, authoritative mentor that I would ever rely on. And actually, to be completely honest, most of my mentors are, are not even alive. And I got all the mentorship through their books. So I remember as a kid feeling like reading a certain book, I'm getting to learn so much and I'm getting to get to a little piece of someone else's mind. And I love that. Uh, that's the kind Can of name one or two? mentorship that I could experience. Of the, the uh, most, deceased actually. ones, the late mentor or mentor. For me, even like Einstein is one of the people that, oh, did you read even if I read a little bit directly from them, but more from the persona that they are. Do you know that one? Hmm? Uh, we'll, we'll have to send it to you. Uh, you'll love it. It's all about I haven't the, seen what this we're one. discussing no. right now. In terms I haven't of creativity. seen this one. So who's somebody yeah. else? Sorry. Yeah. Wow. Sounds really cool. Yeah, I think in general, uh, Carl Sagan was one of the people that inspired me the most. Isaac Asimov, which are science fiction, but also scientific, um, generalized, you know, uh, communicators. That's Those great. were Contact the, the founding ideas for me. Love that. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. In Cosmos, the book, the original book by Carl Sagan was my yeah my beloved precious personal possession that i had at the time we didn't buy so many books when i was a kid yeah that's why i'm interested in star trek let's figure out how to explore the cosmos intelligently (laughs) um do we have to wrap it up for all of our sakes i just want to ask you one last thing which is if you had one thing to share with whoever's listening to to our conversation today or one question for them or an invitation, what would that be? I think uh, probably to to observe their, their curiosity and to, even when they meet another person, go through that uh, openness that curiosity brings. Uh, I think curiosity can't be overemphasized. And so, like I said earlier, um, Life is not a direct path. The path can be very convoluted and finding your own path, finding, uh, attuning to yourself and your own needs, attuning to others in the path and uh, attuning to what growth looks like in your life and experimenting above all uh, to find your own truths. Um, I think those would be... um, that's my modest, um, you know, invitation because of what worked for me as well in the past. That's awesome. Thank you so, so much for sharing that. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, C. Look forward to speaking with you again and uh, getting you back in the ice and see you at Google. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure, guys. Amazing conversation. I'm so happy to share with our community your your beautiful wisdom and i am lucky to say we'll talk talk soon absolutely thank you thank you so much 
All right, welcome back to 2019 after exploring the future with us. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with C. Check the show notes to stay in touch with her on Twitter, as well as a link to our article about Google Glass. That was fascinating. As always, thank you for your comments and reviews, sharing Movement Matters, and please subscribe. That way you'll continue to get these wonderful conversations on coexistence. Next week, we'll be featuring Dr. Michael Kay, one of our team members and founder of the Center for Functional Health. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. <laughs>